Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I'm here today with Benjamin Red as usual. How are you, Ben? I'm good, Nizar. Bad. How are you doing? Not bad. The World Cup is happening. Yeah, right. Like the entire city. I mean, the entire world, really. It is just like filled with Mondial fever. And, and, and Beirut and Lebanon is no exception. I know. Now the politics is Germany versus Brazil versus... It's completely different, right? People are making jokes about this. People are doing analysis. If you have like Lebanese friends on Facebook, everyone has the, their own theory and, and analysis about what's happening. Yeah, it, it it's almost as if these people find the World Cup as interesting as I find Lebanese politics interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, so much affiliation, yeah. so much passion. Crazy times. And, and and we have our own uh, our own little like spin on that politically though right with with what happened yeah. with Ziad Shabib, uh, this past week. yeah. So he he announced something crazy like oh you can't fly flags for other countries in Lebanon and he goes back and he cites this law from like 1945. Yeah. <laughs> Saying, like, you get to, and this is nuts, right? Anybody yeah. who's been in Lebanon during a World Cup knows there's just like, there's flags for Brazil and Argentina and France and Germany, and Germany all over the place, I you know? know? But, but he decided that it was worth his time to come out with this, like, memorandum and say, by the way, guys, this is illegal. You're not allowed to do this. Yeah, there was a lot of black backlash, though. People were making fun of it. People were criticizing it seriously. Because I think, because I think, like, showing affiliation to a, or support to a national uh, team in the World Cup is, like, the most explicit display of of affili- affiliation and support in Lebanon. Like, people who are not so politically involved or whatever find the World Cup as the right time to say, hey, I support this, I'm part of this team, etc. Right, so right. But it, it, it doesn't mean that, like, like it, it doesn't mean that, like, oh, if, if somebody's, like, flying the flag of Germany, it doesn't mean that, like, oh, I love Angela Merkel and her policy. <laughs> like, it, it's totally divorced from politics. Yeah. But he cited three reasons, right, to... to Ziad Shabib. Ziad Shabib, yeah. Beirut's governor. How to... The cases in which people cannot be waving the flags. One of right. Them so, is... so like this was a serious thing. Yeah. First yeah, yeah. off, like because no I I thought it was a joke <laughs> for like a week. Right. No, okay. it's just a memo uh, that he sent to the police forces, and uh, he announced it on the media one day earlier to create like a little fuss around it. Right. So, wh- wh- what were the three reasons? Not to provoke people, or actually, you are not allowed to wave flags if you're provoking others and creating troubles which is not so uncommon in, in Lebanon. <laughs> right, right. Uh, to uh, disturb the cities, not in the intention of, but if you are d- distorting or disturbing the city's uh, look, in terms of like putting a flag over a facade of a, ho- a whole building or maybe right across the street, which is very common as well. Or when they're used outside of the context of football, which is this time with this World Cup, it's very interesting that we have the very political countries competing we have russia we have saudi arabia we have iran and these these countries are very relevant in lebanese politics so we might so also I guess, expect some so like the the nice way to think of this is that ziad shabib was worried that maybe a bunch of say certain people would be running around flying the flag of iran mm-hmm. and other people would be running around flying the flag of saudi yeah and that might cause problems true so that that's the the nice theory that some people have put out there. And the other theory is that he supports Italy or the Netherlands. And it's just, it's just an act of revenge against everyone else, which is also possible. 
Okay, this this wasn't this week, but this was last week. Uh, we we did we just want to note that we had 17 election appeals that were filed. That goes before the Constitutional Council. So whenever they get good and ready, they will uh, announce what's going to go on with that. They can they can do a few different things. They can just dismiss the appeal. Uh, they can like void the election and order new elections. And if if that happens, if if there's like two or fewer seats in a constituency where this happens, it goes back to uh, the first past the post system. So there's a different calculus involved than the proportional law that, that we had this time around. Okay, so they can they can dismiss things, they can order a new election, or they can just say, oh no, you, you really did win. You're mm-hmm. appealing, and we're just going to like make you an MP now, and your opponent, they're no longer an MP. Yeah, it has happened before. It, will happen. it can happen. Right, so the, the, these are the three different possibilities that happen. I mean, usually they just dismiss most of mm-hmm. them, but we, we, we'll see what happens. Until that point, an MP who is being challenged, their seat that's being p- challenged, they're still an MP. Yeah. They can still vote, still have all of the powers of an MP. Uh, so we do have 128 MPs fully empowered at this time. Yeah. Uh, speaking of new MPs, a new MP, Jamila Syed, he went to the special tribunal for, for Lebanon about a week ago to uh, to give testimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he testified for three days and said some pretty interesting things, especially concerning Syria and his you know role. He, he used to be the head of general security, mm-hmm. which is say. And he was sort of blamed for a while for actually Hariri's assassination. Or the, they said he had a hand in it. He was one of four generals. They locked up saying, okay, you... You, you know, knew about this or you, you helped plot this. Uh, ultimately, he was released because there wasn't evidence to back that up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so he, the newly minted MP, traveled. Who won on Hezbollah's list in Al-Bakirmil, just to be very specific. Right, right. Although he is not a member of Hezbollah's block or Amal's block. But he got the largest amount of votes on that list. Which is also interesting. <laughs> it's I very interesting. I think he got 31 or 33,000 votes, which is mm. really big. Yeah, so he, he had some very colorful testimony, right? And mm-hmm. uh, he, he had some interesting things to say, like who was responsible for Rafiq Hariri's assassination? Well, he said basically like the U.S. and Israel, essentially. He was very, I guess, apologetic towards the Syrians. Um, he, he's sort of known to be close to Bashar al-Assad, to be close to... Very uh, close. Yeah. Uh, you know, be, being the head of general security during that time, uh, he, he definitely, uh, he definitely was. So the interesting thing is that the usual argument is that Syria, among like the March 14 camp, is that Syria killed Rafi Hariri because he was taking some stances against them. And then Jamil Said's argument is exact opposite. It's because Hariri was so loyal and supportive of Syria that Israel killed him to get the Syrians out of Lebanon. So right, it's a very right. interesting reasoning. See. Right, it was, uh, it, he basically alleged like sort of a false flag type attack. Yeah. Uh, it said like, oh no, Hariri, there, there was this uh, UN Security Council resolution, I think 1559, right? That had mm-hmm. been approved like in 2004 that basically called, okay, well, now that Israel has withdrawn from the South, everybody, you know, all the foreign powers should leave, that basically meaning Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he said Hariri was not for implementing this UN Security Council resolution. And basically that's why he paid the ultimate price. And so somehow Israel or the United States or somebody, you know, backed by them uh, did this and put the blame on Syria and put the blame on like sort of the March 8th types and therefore got was able to push Syria out. Mm-hmm. A different take from what we typically hear. Let's say interesting for now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we should 
quickly talk about the naturalization decree. Like we, we spent a long time on this in our last podcast, but we've had a few developments since then. So the, the interior ministry actually published it. So th- that's great. One of the, like one of my personal gripes, right. Was <laughs> that this had been done in secret and we didn't even know the names and we didn't know that we, we, you know, the, the Salim Jarsati, the FPM's uh, justice minister, he came out and said, oh, it doesn't even need to be published, right? And so all of a sudden we were we were wondering, are we ever going to see yeah. this? Uh, Semi Jamal tried to get a copy of it and was shut down, all this stuff. So they published it. The Interior Ministry just came out, put it on their website. Here it is. Apparently it's, there's more than 400 names. So there's more, even yeah. more names than we thought. Mm. And so now the General Security is doing a, a check on all of these names, supposedly, but they're, they're not finished. But interestingly enough, some of the people on this list, they're already filing their paperwork with the Interior Ministry to go ahead and get naturalized. Wow. Which is like, okay, you, you probably should wait for the investigation yeah. to finish. But on the other hand, it's all, like this decree is already signed, mm. right? So it should be in force. So, like, right now, politicians are trying to play both sides of it. Mm. Uh, it. It is a legal decree. It should be in force. But they're trying to say, oh, well, let's not implement it until uh, General Security has finished uh, its review of all of the names on the list. Yet, it seems to... Which is a very interesting process to happen after the decree is already signed. Right, right, right. right. And and this is also why we see, you know, people coming out like uh, the patriarch, Bashar al-Rai, coming out against it. And yeah. saying this, this needs to be uh, annulled. This uh, this should not happen like this. And you have like three political parties also going against it: PSP, the Lebanese forces, and Kataeb, right? Right, right. PSP is is the one filing the Shura Council appeal. Yeah. And the Lebanese forces are preparing their file as well. Uh, I think it's great that the PSP figured out the right way to submit an appeal. It's not <laughs> at the Constitutional Council; it is at the Shura Council for something like this. Good for them. Good for them. Uh, the big story, though, this week was Gibran Basile, the foreign minister and the head of the Free Patriotic Movement. He just like came out and, like huge broadside against UNHCR. And this started back, I think, on Thursday or Friday of last week. So not this past Friday, but the week before then. And uh, he had come out the day before or something and said like, oh, we we're very unhappy with the way the UNHCR is operating in the country. Mm-hmm. We are unhappy that it, he was basically alleging that... Uh, UNHCR was pressuring Syrians to stay in Lebanon when everything's fine in Syria, you can just go back, right? Yeah. Uh, and he said, okay, well, we're going to do something. And then Friday he came out and like instructed general security not to process any uh, residency permits for UNHCR staff. So not any renewals, not any new residency permits for the staff of UNHCR in the country, which is pretty huge, it's a pretty really huge escalation. Huge, yeah. yeah. Uh, I wonder how many people work for UNHCR in Lebanon, but I would say thousands because they employ people directly and then they employ people through partner organizations right so you have all these little ngos in different villages and towns created for the sake of using unhcr money to provide assistance to refugees so i wonder without unhcr staff being in lebanon how all this process will will be happening except for apart from unhcr having actually a lot of responsibility for registering refugees and doing some helping them with paperwork apart from just direct assistance. So yeah, really and, and, and I mean, like, UNHCR and, the, like, all the international community is not happy with this, yeah. uh, basically. Uh, they UNHCR says this is not what this is this is not what we're doing. We're not, we're not trying to pressure Syrians not to go back or anything, uh, but, but we just recognize that right now it, 
Syria is still at war. There's still mm-hmm. a problem there. And you, you can't just force people to go back. And basically, there's a disagreement over this. It, it, are there areas in Syria that are safe enough for refugees to go back or not? This is the crux of the argument, yeah. right? Uh, and and uh, Basile's also gotten pushback from within Lebanon as mm-hmm. well, right? So, like, at a, like I don't, I don't know if Hariri's actually come out and said anything, but, like, aides to Hariri have come out and said, sorry, this is, the like, the prime minister's area. He shouldn't be treading on that. Derian... Uh, the, uh, the the Grand Mufti, he came out in his aid sermon, and and he didn't directly say anything against Basile, right? But he indirectly he made he made some comments that seem very much pointed towards uh, like rebutting uh, Basile, yeah, right? Very much so. Yeah, he he said something like, "I don't understand how one person can make a decision on such a serious issue as if there is no government or national policy already in place." Yeah, you know, which okay. Uh, what could he possibly be talking about? Well, obviously this. Yeah. Uh, also, Basile this week came out and said that like there's a deeper conspiracy against Lebanon. Uh, you know, he, he went out to Arcel and went to this cave where a bunch of soldiers had been held, a bunch of Lebanese soldiers uh, and police had been held uh, by ISIS. And he said that, you know, like, thinking of the conspiracy that threatened our existence. You use terms like this, and I am thinking of those responsible in the international community who committed such a crime against Lebanon and Syria, uh, you know, which is really uh, sort of over the top, it sounds like, and a ratcheting up of his rhetoric and a broadening of it against, you know, not just UNHCR, but who else is he talking about uh, in the international community? Mm. UNHCR's backers, you know, uh, we're not sure. And, and connecting that as well to the threat of Daesh in the country. Yep. Uh, but but the bottom line, though, uh, as you were uh, saying to me before we went on the air, is uh, he's the one always speaking up about this because... It's his politics, right? I mean, Basile has announced himself as the anti-refugee settlement kind of politician in Lebanon. He always has this very escalated rhetoric in relation to uh, Palestinian refugees or Syrian refugees. He even submitted this draft law, or he said he would submit it, that would allow Lebanese women to pass the citizenship to their family um, unless the, their husbands are either Palestinians or Syrians. So this anti-Tawtin, anti-naturalization of, Palestine, of refugees rhetoric, he's kind of the, the poster boy for it right now in Lebanon. Don't you feel the same? I mean, it goes, it has this very right-wing kind of scapegoating politics happening. Right. I, I mean, this is, but he's not unique in that, right? Like, this is something that you can see across the, Chris, uh, the Christian spectrum. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's uh, Basile, somebody else from the FPM, or the LF, or the Kata'ib. It doesn't matter. They all have, maybe not to the same, like, heights, uh, but they, they all have this uh, sort of soaring rhetoric ab- about, like, the dangers of this, right? Yeah. Which really reveals, like, the the bottom line here uh, that they're like this plays well amongst the Christian community because the Christian community is scared that these people are going to stay and they're going to irreversibly change the demo- the demography of Lebanon. Yep. Right. And obviously not in their favor. And I think Basile is really. Um... Basile was really obsessed with this. Yeah, so much so, actually. And I think it makes sense because he's had this rhetoric that is anti-Palestinian or anti-Syrian for a while. And imagine if Syrian refugees don't go home, that he yeah. will have such a huge social force in Lebanon that is has a grudge on him. 
right? So I think politically, he's going, he's continuing what he's been doing for a few years now, being the provocative figure, the Donald Trump style politician in Lebanon, right? Get you places, apparently. <laughs> uh, so the other thing that we wanted to talk about in this episode is obviously cabinet formation, what we live and breathe for here. Uh, <laughs> but but I'd, I think it would be interesting to take just a quick step back and talk about um, sort of like the broad strokes of how of, of how a cabinet is formed and like what exactly are these negotiations, what, what are they negotiating yeah. uh, and what are they not negotiating? So I want to start out with what they are not negotiating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and that is, you know, there are sectarian quotas in cabinet. These, these are not constitutional. They're not according to the Ta'if Accord. They're not uh, in law, uh, enshrined anywhere in law. But they are it's sort of, we know that if there is a 30-member cabinet, then uh, a certain number, like, for instance, three ministers will be Druze, mm-hmm. for sure. The The only thing that's sort of like enshrined constitutionally is that it'll be 50-50 Muslim Christian, right? Beyond right. that, we we don't have any of this, but we do know that, okay, 30-member cabinet, 15 Christians, 15 Muslims. Within the Muslim side, we know that there will be six Sunnis, six uh, Shiites, and three Druze. Although the Christian side, spoke about... A Halawite minister this time, right? Yeah, well, they they were talking about perhaps having 32 ministers, yeah. right? And so you would add an Alawite uh, on the Muslim side and add one of the minority Christians. Mm-hmm. I, I forget if it was a Syrian or Syriac, something like that, on the Christian side. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, on the Christian side, I think typically the breakdown for a 30-member cabinet is something like uh, uh, six Maronites, four uh, Greek Orthodox, three Greek Catholics, or sorry, three Catholics and two Armenians, uh, typically Armenian Orthodox, uh, because they're the dominant uh, Armenian sect. So this is, I mean, there there can be changes in this. Uh, occasionally you might see, uh, I, th- I think like in the Makati cabinet, uh, they had one extra Sunni uh, at the expense of the Shiites, for mm-hmm. instance. Uh, but by and large, these things are set. And if you're going to mess with these numbers, you need a very compelling reason, and you need everybody to get on board, basically. Uh, and 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 you especially you need whatever sect is giving up a seat to be happy about giving up that seat yeah. and okay with that. So this is what they are most likely not discussing, yeah. right? This is one of those things that uh, that is set that is very very hard to change. Uh, and it's the same whether it's a 30-member cabinet or a 24-member cabinet. It's just like everything gets shrunk down a little bit, yeah. right? Uh, but these these ratios are set uh, by convention, by uh, by precedent. So what what are they actually arguing over then? Well, they're arguing over against something that is not doesn't have nearly as much of a precedent, and that is like the party's uh, stakes uh, and also the the president's shares and the prime minister's share, right? So typically we have uh, like a, a president's share in the in the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Say the president uh, gets you know to name like five ministers or three ministers or whatever it may be, but this is not like set. We, we, there there's no like oh uh, the president always gets to name five five people uh, in a thirty member member cabinet necessarily. Yeah. Uh, so this is one of the things they're talking about. How big should the president's share be? What should that share look like? Uh, how big should the other party's shares be? Uh, these are all of the things I think right now. I mean, we 
we don't know. I don't get on the phone with Saad Hariri at night and like and gab about you know the latest <laughs> you know the the latest what whatever discussions he's had with Michelle Aoun. You know that I I don't know for sure, but I am like pretty sure like this is what everything is being zeroed in on because it makes sense, right? Yeah, I think what they're actually arguing about or negotiating about is who gets the predetermined number of seats for each sect. So, for example, Hezbollah is now Hezbollah is pushing for um, a Sunni seat that is against Hariri, thinking of Osama Saad in Saida, for example. Right. Um, right. Basil, for example, was saying that he wanted uh, Talal Islan, the only Druze MP that is not affiliated to Jumblat's bloc, to be in the as defense minister or in the cabinet because they create this mini parliamentary block for Irslan that has Irslan and then three or two MPs from FPM in Shufan Ali. Yeah, which so, is sort of ridiculous, right? So you can't you can't say, oh, I've got a strong 29 member block. Uh, oh, but four of them are also this other block. It, it, that, that doesn't really work um, and unless you want to give up, you know, uh, you know, definitely give up a one of your seats uh, in cabinet to Talal Arslan, which I guess that's what he wants to do. That's probably what they're trying to do. Jumblat, on the other hand, saying no, all three Druze ministries should be should be my choice because I had the largest number of of Druze MPs in Parliament. Right, he got seven out of the eight seats. Right, exactly. so this is how I think uh, the negotiations are happening, and I think the numbers are not uh, the only important thing. The numbers are so important for the voting, for like which decision the cabinet makes, but also the type of ministry and which services it provides is more, probably more important in some cases. And sometimes also it depends on, for example, people, uh, a certain party wanting to get a foreign ministry because it's about Lebanon's representation abroad and because they all, all have like foreign connections, etc. So I think it's too, too many intersection, intersecting dimensions that it's, Really hard for us to predict, for example. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And and we we've we've spoken about this before on the podcast about you know like how the the four sovereign ministries, uh, finance, foreign, uh, defense, defense and interior, and, and interior uh, how they're sort of like the crown jewels. But then you also have the second tier ministries, right? Mm-hmm. That are sort of the services oriented uh, things like education. Uh, what else do you have? Health, energy, right? Uh, yeah, public works, transportation, uh-huh. things like this. Uh, and then you have like sort of the, the tiny ministries that are still good. And and then the, the ministers without portfolio, we call them ministers of state. These are still very important. These are like still very prized positions because when you come down to it, the cabinet is sort of like a mini parliament, right? Yep. And, and so if you have a vote, if you're there, like you, you've got a seat at the table, literally, and and everybody wants that seat at the table, even if it's, uh, you know, a, a, a ministry or, or a minister without portfolio, a minister of state, they still want that seat at the table. Definitely. The question, though, is like, will they accept a, you know, like, will Kataeb accept it if they are offered a, you know, a minister of state uh, position? Mm-hmm. knows uh, Talal Arslan was offered the minister of state position uh, uh, a few governments back and he didn't accept it because he thought that his stature uh, was higher than that. His position in Lebanese politics was higher than that. And so he said, no, I'm not going to take it. I think his cousin or somebody related to him uh, ended up taking it. So he didn't like lose out <laughs> on, yeah, on, on the position, but he didn't lower you know, he didn't deign to, to, to go into that. It's a matter uh, of prestige, role. I guess. Uh, so this week, uh, we also had Jaja 
Samir Jaja, the head of the Lebanese forces, come out. He gave uh, an interview to DPA, the, the German press agency. And he, he said a couple of things that, to me, sound like they are in contradiction. Uh, one thing that he said was that we have we had an agreement with the FPM, the Marab agreement, and that said that we should have an equal share, the same share as the FPM bloc in cabinet. Uh, in return for voting for Michel Aoun as president. Obviously. Exactly. Exactly. And he said, so this, this is what happened. And technically it did happen last time. Yeah. They each got a four uh, member share in the in the last cabinet. It's just that Michelle Aoun got a presidential share of five and he gave them all to the FPM. So the FPM <laughs> <laughs> like had a much larger uh, block in cabinet than, uh, than the LF did. Uh, so anyway, Jaja said this, like we, we want equality with, with the FPM block. But at the same time, he was arguing that he wanted the LF the LF share to be proportional to what they had gotten in parliament. So last time they had, uh, in the last parliament, they had eight MPs and they got four members of cabinet. Which was quite exaggerated. Right, was a lot, right? <laughs> and and he, he didn't, I don't think he came out and said this, but he basically, you know, put that idea out there that, oh, well, we doubled our size in parliament. Mm-hmm. So we should have uh, the commensurate, uh, you know, size in in the cabinet as well. He was on on that side. He was arguing for like basing the LF uh, cabinet uh, size on on its block on, on how many people it had in Parliament. But on the other side, he was saying, "Well, we should have the same number of cabinet ministers as the FPM does, even though the FPM has like twice as many people in Parliament." We should have the same size. I, th- I don't know, actually, if he means by that uh, to include or exclude Aoun's share, right, as the president. Because I probably, th- I, I don't think that Jaja would say something as ridiculous as Aoun and the FPM being the largest bloc in parliament and the president having the same share as a, as one party with 15 MPs, right? But before him, uh, I, I'm not sure if he said, I don't think he said it, but uh, people within the LF have come out and said that Aoun, when uh, naming the people for the the president chair, this time Aoun must give some of their seats to the LF mm, okay. because otherwise it's just, you know, it, it, it it's another share for the FPM. And if Aoun wants to be uh, above politics as like a real president of everybody, then he needs to not just give cabinet seats out to his buddies in the FPM. Sounds like a decent thing to do, not to give into the LF, but to choose independent people like Michel Sleiman used to do. Uh, I did a quick and dirty breakdown of if, if we are following that logic of how many ministers you should get if you are just basing things on your size, the size of your couple in uh, in parliament. And so what I came out with was like, so the if we consider the FPM, first off, let's say it's a 30 member uh, block or sorry, a 30 member government, which is sort of it seems like things are going in that direction. Thirty a thirty member government, it, it's easier to make than a twenty four member government because you can include more people, right? Mm-hmm. And if we do that, then the FPM, it, if we are considering it as a twenty nine member block, should get like six point eight, so like seven ministers, right? Uh, future, the second largest block should get like four point seven, so five ministers. Amal for the LF, like three point five. Uh, Hezbollah three, uh, the uh, Marada and Karami block uh, like one point six, so maybe two. Uh, Makati should get one. Uh, uh, the PSP should get should get two, uh, and Katab should get like point seven or so. And then there's like eleven other like 
random members of parliament. Uh, so they, they would make another one. So you fill in whatever the 30th, you know, you've got 29 yeah. ministers here. You fill in the 30th with with somebody. Uh, so th- this is interesting, though, because, for instance, if you're just going off these numbers, that means the the LF, like, four would be actually, okay, you, you, want, you want your real size, what you deserve. Four is being generous, mm. even now. So being having four last time was uh, was as you said like very very generous to the LF. It makes sense if they give four to LF, four to FPM, and then three more to FPM from Aun's share in terms of uh, the numbers you're saying. Say yeah. seven for FPM and four for LF, right? So it makes sense if they have four and four, and then Aun appoints three from FPM. Right. Which right, he will do right. anyway, to be honest. Right. Or or if. Uh, they decide that the FPM block really is only 25 members and that there is this Arslan block with four members, then like the, the FPMers would get like six instead of seven. And you can like break that down correctly in the mm. same way between uh, like the presidential share and the FPM share. Uh, and then Arslan would get like his one, his one seat. Right? Yeah. So in, interestingly with this, if we are just going off the numbers though, then that means the, the PSP, He's been saying, like, I want all three of my, like, I, I, I got so, uh, I, I, I dominated the scene, uh, the Druze uh, seats, right? So I should get all three of them? Well, in, in the larger scheme of things, no. You really only got enough representation in Parliament to deserve two out of the three seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Erslan, if you count his, like, that four-member block, he does deserve that other Druze seat. On the other hand, though, if you go down to 24 members, then there's only two, right? Only two, two Drew seats in a 24-member cabinet. Yeah. And if you do that, then definitely, accord, you, you redo these numbers for everybody and the PSB, Jumblatt's block, he gets both of those seats. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter what Erslan got or did not get or his allies got or did not get. Uh, all of the Drew's representation would definitely go to Jumblatt. Yeah. And I think also another dimension that's interesting is uh, if we go with your numbers, um, so 7 FPM, 5 Future, etc., 4 RLF, etc., if we go with these numbers, then you will have, uh, the question will be, how many ministers will be in the anti-Syrian regime block, or not block, but anti-Syrian regime camp to a certain extent, in cabinet? Because we always have these discussions about the the third of the cabinet that can distort major decisions, right? We call it a so basically blocking third yeah yeah so basically whether lf future and psp and kataeb will have more than 10 mp 10 ministers to block decisions that would be in favor of the syrian regime for instance or or major foreign policy or defense decisions so i think it's that's exactly the edge of it right because if we give five to future four to lf and two to psp we have 11 and then maybe one for Katai. That's like exactly the number they need, more than one third. And if they have a 32 minister cabinet, we're talking about 11 or 12 maybe for the blocking third. Yeah. So very interesting to see what's going to happen because to say, to be very honest, I think that Hezbollah, FPM, Amal and the pro-Syrian camp in general won a very big majority in parliament. It's clear that Hezbollah is very, very explicit about having more power than before in Lebanese politics, especially that. Also, Mohammed Raad this week said uh, Hezbollah can now, with its allies, block a lot of decisions in parliament, a lot of laws from being, being passed that we couldn't earlier. So it's very clear that Hezbollah is claiming this um, 
victory to a certain extent. And I think more interesting than Hezbollah itself is just uh, the Syrian regime tolerant camp being the overwhelming majority of uh, of the cabinet and or the parliament. And Hezbollah wants a, a better ministry. In the, in the past, they've settled for like ministers of state mm-hmm. and for ministries like uh, they think they currently have youth and sports for instance, mm. which is a tiny ministry, minuscule. And, and they're saying this time around, we want, we're, we're not going to ask for that top tier yet. We're not going to ask for a sovereign ministry, but we are going to ask for one of those service ministries. And so I think uh, health is being considered. Uh, and and we're going to see all of this stuff happen over the next couple of weeks because now we, we are in Eid al-Fitr right now. And everybody has been saying... Uh, well, once Eid al-Fitr, once Ramadan is done, once Eid is done, then we are going to actually get down to the business of forming a cabinet. And and so there's a lot of expectations that there's going to be, like, things are going to actually shift into high gear over the next couple of weeks. It, and it seems as though all the parties really want this to happen pretty soon. Yeah. Whether that will actually happen or not, we don't know, but we're going to keep, we're going to keep looking at it. And so we will be back next week with... All with a whole new podcast looking at all this stuff. Uh, by the way, I, I I think we should say we're very sorry we missed last week. Uh, it was sort of a last minute deal, uh, a, a little case of double booking because somebody <laughs> got a somebody got a little bit happy about their birthday. Uh, yeah. Did yeah. you really have to mention it? Of course. Happy <laughs> birthday, man. Thank you. <laughs> so we will be back next week with more on cabinet formation, most probably hopefully with a new cabinet and um, more news that will drop this week. Follow us on SoundCloud, on Twitter, on iTunes. Uh, Let us know what you think of our podcast. We are very interested to hear your feedback. And see you next week. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.